0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World Podcast magazine. Hello everyone, a warm welcome to the History of the World Podcast magazine. Now, I know some of you will have been waiting for a few days for this one to come out, expecting it maybe a few days ago, Uh, but don't worry, uh, this is just uh, my opportunity to publish something uh, before this weekend where we'll be travelling back to ancient Japan, so you can expect another episode in just a couple of days, so don't worry, Uh, but this episode is really just to replace the missing episode from the weekend just gone. So we're going to go back in history as we usually do during the magazine episodes and revisit some of the uh, subjects that we have been talking about in the History of the World podcast in years gone by. Now, our first journey back in time will take us back to last year when we were talking about the colony of New Netherland and in this episode we talked about how Europeans first started settling the great city of New York. So let's go back to the 17th century and hear about that story. At the beginning of the 17th century, global exploration was a major political activity for the wealthiest European nations, who were encouraging enterprise in order to bring the riches of newly discovered lands back to their own nations. The Dutch were happy to let their wealthiest entrepreneurs take advantage of the opportunities to fund their own private ventures, and so private companies were set up in order to organise the investments and distribute it effectively. The company favoured by the Dutch government was the Dutch East India Company, which was granted a monopoly on Asian trade activity, and so private investors would be invited to buy shares in the company in what was quite an unprecedented business practice at the time. The company became so powerful as a consequence that it developed the political power of a nation in its own right. For the Dutch East India Company, one of the most important strategies was to find the North East Passage, the Arctic sea route to the Far East, which had been searched for for many decades, and especially by a great rival of the Dutch in terms of global exploration, the English. One English sea explorer called Henry Hudson had attempted to sail along the north coast of Russia thanks to the investment of English trading companies but Hudson came back to England unsuccessfully with storage of large barriers of ice preventing safe passage. It's possible that Hudson fell out of favour as the right sailor to get the job done, but the Dutch East India Company were willing to invest in him and so Hudson took advantage of the new opportunity to fulfil his ambitions with them. This time... Hudson would be granted the command of a Dutch flyboat called the Hulver Man and he would set off along the north coast of Russia again. This time, it would be the same result. Ice would prevent his passage. Rather than go back to the Dutch Republic with another disappointing tale of failure, Hudson would turn his attention to the alternative North West Passage. The Northwest Passage was an alternative but yet undiscovered means to reach the Far East by sea travel, but this time by navigating across the north of the American continent. This passage had been of interest to the English too, especially as they were now establishing colonies in North America. And Henry Hudson had some knowledge of them simply because of his English background. It was in July of 1609 that Henry Hudson took the Halver men to the coast of Newfoundland and then on to the coast of Nova Scotia, all of which are now Canadian territories. The indigenous peoples of these lands were quite used to European visits by now. After sailing all the way down to Chesapeake Bay via Cape Cod, Hudson decided to turn back but this time he would investigate the waterways and rivers of the coastline at a closer distance. The Delaware River proved unnavigable so Hudson continued northwards and entered Lower Bay between Sandy Hook and Breezy Point what we know today as the entrance to New York Harbour. Upon entering the harbour Hudson recognized that he had options and chose the northbound river as it seemed the most likely to ultimately be a channel to the west. Unfortunately, it wasn't, and Henry Hudson had no choice but to turn back. Hudson headed back across the Atlantic but had a bit of a quandary. If he went back to the Dutch Republic, he may face repercussions for disobeying instructions and abandoning the North East Passage. So he chose the home nation of England, but the English were not best pleased with him either, effectively working for their enemies. Hudson would sail again in search of the North West Passage soon afterwards, but this time he never returned, disappearing into a body of water now named after him as Hudson Bay. The northbound river that Hudson attempted to navigate in the Halvermen is now called the Hudson River, also in his honor. The Halvermen and the journal written by one of Henry Hudson's crew members were taken back to the Dutch Republic. Dutch companies would show an interest in investigating the fur trade opportunities with the natives in this area of the Americas documented by Hudson's crew. The natives appeared to be friendly in the large part, but not completely. Hudson had had some serious trouble from some of the natives during his journeys. However, it was still felt that trade could be done, so seamen, including one Adrian Block, were sent to the areas explored by Henry Hudson in the early part of the 610s. Adrian Bloch attempted to map much of the area that Hudson had explored by exploring it himself in more detail. Bloch established a fur trading post at Fort Nassau, which was deep into the Hudson River Valley at the modern city of Albany. But competition was fierce between different Dutch companies competing for their share in the fur trade. In order to prevent costly altercations, these companies conceded that they should form a governing company responsible for ensuring fair and amicable competition, and so was created the New Netherland Company. The New Netherland Company applied to the Dutch government for an exclusive patent to be able to monopolise the fur trade of the Hudson River Valley and its surrounding area. The patent came into effect in 1614 and prevented other companies from being involved in this particular fur trade route and upsetting the lucrative equilibrium. The New Netherland Company did not have its patent renewed by the Dutch government when it expired in 1618 and this could be down to the fact that there was a bigger picture to be considered. The Dutch had had ongoing issues with the Habsburgs who still occupied territory to their south in Europe, with control of the Habsburg Netherlands belonging to the Kingdom of Spain. The Dutch Republic wanted to encourage a monopoly similar to the Dutch East India Company that would be responsible in the large part for all of its transatlantic trade network, which would include their interests in Brazil and the Caribbean. It would be convenient for the business of New Netherland to be amalgamated into this monopoly, but the Spanish tried to deny the Dutch from forming this company within the terms of the peace agreement called the 12 Years' Truce between the two countries. Eventually, the importance and potential gains of such a well-organised equivalent became too large and it would provide the resource necessary to help them stand up against Spanish oppression. And so, the Dutch West India Company was formed. There would be a considerable opinion that the production of New Netherland would be increased if the Dutch were willing to consider the colonising of this area. This would mean finding individuals willing to settle in a new land on behalf of the Dutch West India Company and importing the necessary slave labour in order to sustain it. It would also mean having individuals who could negotiate with the indigenous American Indians to maintain peaceful relationships. It would not be easy to establish such a colony due to the investment required but the pressures of other countries such as the English establishing colonies further east on the coastal territories of the US state of Massachusetts could become a threat to Dutch control of New Netherland in the long term so the prospect of colonisation was becoming a necessity. The Dutch West India Company would transport Walloon and Flemish families to distinct Low Countries ethnicities, over to New Netherland and settle them at Fort Orange, built in close proximity to Fort Nassau in the modern city of Albany, and on Governor's Island in New York Harbour, which the Dutch would call Notten Eiland. Other families were taken elsewhere across New Netherland, and so the colonisation of the modern city of New York and its surrounding areas by Europeans had begun. Trade The initial opportunities between Dutch explorers and American natives were discovered by Henry Hudson's party, who encountered the natives, some friendly, others not so friendly, while travelling from New York harbour up the Hudson River. One of the biggest discoveries by Europeans when arriving in the Americas was the tobacco plants, which would quickly become one of the most popular recreational drugs of the entire world. Hudson's crew would be offered tobacco in exchange for European knives, hatchets and beads. Other native offerings would include maize and pumpkins, two very American foodstuffs that have become popular worldwide. One of the largest trade attractions of the Native Americans were their furskins. The most popular pelt was that of the beaver, and this was certainly among the most popular individual items for which Dutch merchants were willing to go to great lengths to be able to gain stock of. Another naval explorer called Hendrik Christiansen would be directly involved in the initial exchanges of the Van Tvenhuisen Company, a Dutch company whose members would go on to form an important part of the New Netherland Company and a company who would employ the services of Adrian Bloch. Despite us referring to the colonisation of Governor's Island as the origin of the city of New York, it is likely that Hendrik Christiansen built houses on the southern tip of Manhattan Island, with the name Manhattan being derived from the name given to the island by the locals, Manahatta. It is suggested that Manhattan Island was no more than a hunting ground for the nomadic Native Americans. The Wequasgeek were a tribe from further north on the east banks of the Hudson River Valley and are likely to have accessed the island from the modern borough of the Bronx, with the other tribes being the Kanasi, accessing Manhattan Island from their base in Long Island. The presence of a handful of European houses at the southern tip of Manhattan Island would have been of little concern to the Native Americans. Our second journey back, uh, in history this week, uh, takes us back three years ago when we were all in lockdown. Who can believe that? Who can believe we lived through that? Um, but at the time we were talking about Julius Caesar and we was giving him a lot of, uh, a lot of detailed attention in, two episodes we spoke about Julius Caesar, and um, in the first one, which is the one that we're going to revisit now, we spoke about his early life. So let's go back now and hear about the earliest days of this legendary leader's life. Gaius Julius Caesar was born on the 12th or 13th of July 100 BCE in the city of of rome his father was a roman senator also called gaius julius caesar his mother was called aurelia and she was a descendant of a plebeian family caesar's father had a sister and her name was julia julia was married to one of the most prominent statesmen of rome at that time a man called gaius marius Gaius Marius was a charismatic man who had made major reforms to the Roman military that were not only necessary, but also highly successful. Despite Julia being of aristocratic patrician birth, her husband Marius was an advocate of the Popularis cause in Rome which sought to support the citizens directly over conserving the wealth and traditions of the aristocracy and a more capitalistic approach to the direction of the Roman Republic. Marius would look to accommodate the needs of the average citizen, and although this made him less popular with the aristocracy, it would make him more popular with the population in general. Growing up, we can suggest that through Caesar's own character and his own choices in life, that he must have been inspired by Gaius Marius, and what he had achieved. And we shouldn't be too surprised because Marius was an inspiration to many. However, Rome had been spiraling into a political division, the likes of which had not been seen since the conflict of the orders when the plebeians were fighting for political rights against the patricians in the early years of the Roman Republic. The optimates and their supporters had shown that they were not beyond murdering political opponents as demonstrated during the times of the Gracchi brothers, and this only served to heighten tensions in the Roman Republic. So Caesar was born into a tense Roman society where you could be forced to choose your loyalty and pay the consequences of your choice. Marius had used a great degree of political diplomacy to balance the generally cynical attitude of the senators towards popularist politicians and support for his own beliefs and causes. As consul, Marius would have to stand up in the face of people who he may otherwise have supported such as Saturninus, and so this would have been valuable lessons for the child Caesar learning the way of the world that he was born into. Marius would be an important commander in the social war between the Roman Republic and its Italian allies. The Italian allies were the non-Roman societies such as the Etruscans and other Italian peninsular ethnicities that wanted to be entitled to full Roman citizenship. And once again, Marius would have ordinarily have supported their cause, but for the fact that this had now turned into a military issue. Marius had to honor his political duty to stand up for the Republic. The Republic would put down the rebellion, but Marius would have been pleased to see that the Italian allies would have been granted Roman citizenship to prevent further bloodshed and conflict. By this time, a new threat to Roman lands had emerged in the east when the powerful king Mithridates VI of Pontus started taking military action against Roman positions in Asiatic lands. Marius was keen to lead an army to take on Mithridates, but the Senate denied him that honour, instead choosing an optimate called Sulla instead. Marius was absolutely furious. Despite supporting the Roman Republic for many years, reforming the military of a dysfunctional establishment into a successful one and standing up against his own personal morals to patriotically and dutifully support the Republic's cause, the Senate still had reservations about Marius and overlooked him for this great honor. Violence in the Roman Forum enabled Marius to force his intentions and bully the Senate into allowing him to take command of the Roman legions. It was now Sulla's time to be furious and he fled Rome and gathered together his own military legions before marching on Rome and taking power back from Marius and thus forcing the Senate to revert to their original decision to allow Sulla to lead the army against Mithridates. This was a typical example of how the Senate were losing their power being influenced by the military action of individuals as opposed to democratic decision-making. So the fabric of the Roman Republic was falling apart. When Sulla left Rome to enjoy the potentially immortalising duty of leading a Roman army to victory in the east, Marius would take control back in Rome anyway. By this time Marius' nephew Julius Caesar was coming of age. With his uncle Marius in power in Rome and Marius' political opponent Sulla away in the east, Caesar would have been comfortable in Rome as a teenager. Marius allowed his political ally Lucius Cornelius Cina to become elected as consul. So things were looking rosy for the popularis while Sulla was away. The next few years brought with them a series of incredible events. The ageing Marius passed away in 86 BCE, and then the following year so did Caesar's father, reportedly after waking up one morning and putting on his shoes in what must be the most unglamorous of deaths in Roman history. Caesar, while still a teenager, would become the head of his family and as a member of a patrician family, he was able to be nominated for one of the ceremonial priesthoods of the Republic and he would be chosen to be the Flamen Dialis, the high priest of Jupiter. This would mean that he would be obliged to marry a patrician lady and so he would take the hand of Cornelia the daughter of his uncle's political ally, Cina. So Caesar was already becoming a very important young individual of Roman society due to his family ties. While all of these events were taking place in Rome, the absent, optimate politician and commander Sulla had been successful against King Mithridates VI of Pontus by first driving him and his supporters out of Athens and the Balkan Peninsula. Sulla would have been fully aware of the situation back in Rome with the Marians, those followers of the now deceased Gaius Marius, being in control of Rome. So Sulla would now need to return to Rome and take power as he had done before the First Mithridatic War. Caesar's father-in-law, Cina, had also been removed from the political chessboard since being unceremoniously murdered by his own soldiers in 84 BCE. So when Sulla returned to Rome, alongside commanders such as Crassus and Pompey, who we will talk of later, all of those men that Caesar would have looked up to were now gone. Caesar's own father, his uncle Marius, and his father-in-law Cina, when Sulla eventually took back control in 81 BCE, Caesar would have been 18 years old and a political enemy of Sulla's Rome purely due to his popularist heritage. Sulla stripped Caesar of his priesthood and so Caesar fled Rome to avoid imprisonment. Exile Caesar would have initially fled to the safety of the Sabine Hills, northeast of Rome. Caesar's mother, Aurelia, is likely to have still been in Rome with her family, some of whom were supporters of Sulla and the Optimates, and some of them are said to have appealed to Sulla for clemency on the young Julius Caesar. Although Sulla may have shown lenience, Caesar was not prepared to take any chances and looked for opportunities to enhance his standing and reputation without going back to Rome. He knew that while Sulla was in control of Rome, there would be no opportunity for him. Caesar was very well aware that if you wanted to be taken seriously in Rome, then you needed to have a reputation for being a worthy military commander. And so Caesar decided to travel to Asia Minor to act as a Roman ambassador In Bithynia. If he could have an influence on the political situation in Bithynia then his personal stock may rise and he would be known as being fearless in the shadows of the mighty Pontic kingdom under the politically and militarily aggressive King Mithridates VI. However there doesn't appear to be any record of major conflict between Bithynia and Pontus during this period but it does appear that certain members of the Roman elite would make fun of Caesar's ambassadorial visit by claiming that he was in a homosexual relationship with King Nicomedes IV of Bithynia. Now in the classical world, it wasn't such a social embarrassment to engage in homosexual acts if you were a male. As we know, It was actively encouraged in ancient Greece between military men as a form of emotional bonding that would strengthen an army unit as a whole. Whether or not Caesar was engaged in such a relationship with Nicomedes is unknown, but it was unlikely as there is no direct evidence to suggest it, and the Roman desire to ridicule him would have been to have portrayed him as the young submissive sexual conquest of Nicomedes. By mockingly dubbing Caesar the Queen of Bithynia. It seems that Caesar remained away from Rome up until the retirement and death of Sulla in seventy-eight B.C.E., and it would be at this point that Caesar would return to his home city. Rome was now different, with both Marius and Cinna now deceased. Sulla had kept the Marian popularist supporters. In check, but now he was gone. The tension still remained between the Popularis and the Optimates, though, and Pompey was put forward to deal with the problem. Caesar could have joined the Popularis cause, but he had little wealth, and the young man decided to keep a low profile. Caesar would take to public speaking and would look to enhance his academic knowledge he would decide to follow in the footsteps of another young Roman contemporary called Marcus Tullius Cicero, who is more commonly known as Cicero, another man that would play an important role in the politics of the later years of the Roman Republic. Cicero had studied in Rhodes under a tutor called Apollonius Molen, and Caesar decided to do the same. It would have been during these Mediterranean journeys that Caesar would have been kidnapped by pirates who had travelled west from the area of Cilicia in southern Anatolia. This would be the beginning of quite a bizarre but nonetheless entertaining episode of Caesar's life and though it is tempting to question the veracity of the story it is still considered to be an important event in Caesar's young life. The Greek author Plutarch wrote a number of biographies about people in the classical era and Julius Caesar was one of them. Plutarch brings the story of Caesar's kidnap by Cilician pirates to us in his work. The pirates took Caesar to the island of Pharmacusa which is the island of Pharmaconisi in the Dodecanese islands of the Aegean Sea just off the Anatolian coast. Plutarch suggests that Caesar had a very high opinion of himself even as a captive prisoner when the pirates put a ransom on Caesar's head Caesar found the ransom amount to be ridiculous deeming it a personal insult that it was so low despite the Being their captive prisoner, Caesar would see his own standing as a class above the pirates, believing that he was correct to tell the pirates to lower their voices when he was trying to sleep. Caesar would also verbally taunt the pirates, threatening to have them hanged after he was freed. The pirates just laughed, refusing to rise to these seemingly irrelevant threats. Eventually, a ransom did arrive for Caesar from the city of Miletus. The pirates gratefully accepted this ransom allowing Caesar to go thinking little more of anything apart from the money. However, when Caesar got to Miletus he actually gathered a small naval fleet and went back to Pharmacusa where he would overwhelm and capture the pirates themselves. Caesar Took the pirates to Pergamon and arranged to have them all crucified. And all this after they mocked him for threatening him with death while he was still incarcerated by them. There we go. Now, four years ago, we were in ancient Mesoamerica and we were talking about one of the earliest civilizations that we have any sort of knowledge for, for that area of the world. And they are the Olmecs. Now the Olmecs are probably most famous or most recognisable for the colossal heads that they used to create. And so let's go back and discover a little bit more about those colossal heads and a little bit more about the Mesoamerican anomaly of the ball game. Quite possibly the most iconic image of the Olmec culture has to be the colossal heads which were carved. The stone was basalt and it is believed that it had to be imported from the Tutslas mountains. This means that the basalt stones could weigh up to 50 tonnes and had to be transported for dozens of kilometres. Once again we see an instance of the mysterious transportation of massive stones which we have seen so many times already. It appears that humans were innovative enough to find solutions for transporting large objects wherever humans could be found. The heads themselves are fascinating. The facial features are not completely unlike the features found on the wear jaguar masks with large lips, wide nostrils and almond shaped eyes. The colossal heads can be found at La Venta but also at San Lorenzo which suggests that the production of these monuments was something that continued over a number of centuries. Some experts speculate that the heads each represented an Olmec ruler but there is absolutely no conclusive evidence of this. One of the fascinating aspects of the heads is the fact that they are wearing some kind of headgear which resembles a helmet. One of the first assumptions that one could make about ancient headgear is that it would be part of some kind of military armour which would offer protection to a warrior belonging to a society. However, it may actually be related to the rubber balls mentioned at the start of the episode. The rubber balls that gave the Olmecs their name. It might be the case that the headgear was actually part of the outfits worn in the ball game that we believe the Olmecs may have been playing. Ball games. Now there's not been a lot in the way of written rules for the Mesoamerican ball game of the Olmecs. We have to rely on contemporary depictions and tracking back from future versions. The National Geographic Atlas of the Ancient World describes the ball game as a game between two teams playing on a sunken ball court. The balls used were the rubber balls described earlier in the podcast made from the milky sap of the Panama rubber tree. It is suggested that the idea of the game was to get the rubber balls into your opponent's end of the court without using your hands. Such is the competitive nature of the game that it is also suggested that injury was not uncommon, hence the requirement for protective equipment, such as the headgear previously mentioned. Versions of this ancient American ball game exist to this very day in the form of ulama, but although it is a competitive form of leisure these days, there may have been a much more sinister side to the game in ancient times as depicted by some of the ancient artwork discovered. It may be that those who ended up on the losing team may have been executed, possibly as human sacrifice. So human sacrifice is something that is considered as a very realistic possibility in Mesoamerica and it seems undeniable when you look at some of the carvings and depictions. Wherever we go in the world we see evidence of sacrifice whether it be offerings of metal jewellery, surplus agricultural yield, livestock or human beings themselves, even children. Bloodletting may have also been taking place with evidence of stingray spines being uncovered at grave sites. The Olmec figurines That depict young children could represent child sacrifice, but they equally could represent rebirth. The beauty of the Olmecs is that they have given to us a great number of mysterious constructions and artifacts, all of which appear to be open to our own interpretations. The mystery is in part due to a lack of written explanation, although. There was the Cascahau block, which was something that we spoke about way back in episode 22. It was a stone block on which symbols have been carved, which could easily represent written glyphs. However, we have absolutely no idea whether they are part of a glyphic writing system, let alone what they might say. Our final journey back to the past for this week's episode takes us back to human evolution, something that we were talking about five years ago in the podcast's history. And during the episode that was published five years ago, we spoke of the encounters between Neanderthals and modern humans in Western Europe. And the modern human of Western Europe has been historically referred to as Cro-Magnon humans. So let's go back and listen a little bit more about this period of interaction and what the ultimate fate was for the Neanderthals. As mentioned previously, Mode 4 technology is the Aurignacian culture which dates from around 43,000 years ago to around 28,000 years ago and is considered to be found in Central and Southern Europe. This fits in perfectly with the next part of the story which details the movement of Homo sapiens into the range of the Neanderthals who themselves have been attributed with the older Mode 3 Mousterian technology. The type site. The Aurignacian technology is Aurignac in the south of modern day France. The Aurignacian actually demonstrates among other things that humans had a real desire to create art which is something we haven't discussed in too much detail but something that we will tackle in a dedicated podcast in the very near future. Now I do believe that it is quite possible for Homo sapiens and Neanderthals to have crossed paths in the Levant. And more detail regarding that can be found in the previous podcast. I struggle to accept a concept of Homo sapiens encountering Neanderthals and going out on an all-out genocidal rampage. Certainly with DNA analysis suggesting that Homo sapiens were quite happy to sexually reproduce with Neanderthals, it would not be consistent with this rampage theory. Realistically, I believe that if there were enough resources for both species to live peacefully side by side, then this is not impossible as long as each tribe respected each other's range. In truth, we don't know this due to a lack of evidence, but it strikes me as just as unlikely as any other scenario. The one thing that has pushed me back in terms of understanding what happened when Homo sapiens Ventured into the European heartland of the Neanderthals has been the results of a study made by Professor Tom Hyams' team at the School of Archaeology at Oxford University. Most books will tell you that Neanderthals died out after 30,000 years ago, which suggests that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals coexisted in Europe for around 10 to 15,000 years. The dates of Neanderthal remains were by and large dated using the most well-known radiometric dating method called radiocarbon dating. Materials containing the radioactive isotope called carbon-14 will experience half of those isotopes decaying and turning into nitrogen every 5,730 years, which is carbon-14's half-life. This sounds like a wonderfully convenient method of dating organic material but it has two drawbacks. The first drawback is that if something is older than 50,000 years old the amount of carbon can become so little that it can be hard to gather an accurate measurement. You would then need to find a radioactive element with a higher half-life such as the potassium argon and argon-argon radiometric dating methods mentioned in our very early podcasts in this series. The second drawback comes when carbon-14, which is unrelated to the organic matter being dated, manages to infiltrate the reading. This can give you a false reading and make the organic matter seem more recent due to carbon, which is not supposed to be there, fooling the archaeologist. Hyam's team recognised this possibility and set about finding a way in which to filter out the foreign carbon to be able to get a purer reading of the Neanderthal remains which had been discovered across Europe over the course of the many recent decades. What Hyam's team found is that it is likely that our estimate of Neanderthal disappearance has been too recent and that we ought to be pushing it back to a period not 30,000 years ago, but nearer 40,000 years ago. Now, this might not seem too critical. Neanderthals were in Europe since before 250,000 years ago when they may have evolved from Homo heidelbergensis and then they disappeared comparatively recently. However, it is more critical when we try to determine why they disappeared. And the reason why this is so critical is because of when Homo sapiens started moving into Europe. European, European Homo, Homo sapiens. sapiens Now before I venture into this story, I just want to address one form of terminology which has been traditionally used to describe early European modern Homo sapiens. That being Cro-Magnon men. Now the Cro-Magnon Man is named after the Cro-Magnon Rock Shelter which had begun to be excavated from as far back as 1868. The remains found there were distinctly different from Neanderthal remains which had also started being discovered in the 19th century. This led into a fascinating fantasy world of Cro-Magnons versus Neanderthals which captured the public imagination. However, I don't want to refer to early Homo sapiens in Europe as Cro-Magnons, as I would rather use Cro-Magnon to refer to the site which can be found at Les Aisies de taille in the Dordogne Department of France. One of the most important sites when looking into the Homo sapiens migration into the Neanderthal European range and establishing what happened when they did is in modern-day Romania. The findings at Peshterakuase, which translates to Cave with Bones, in southwest Romania, has kept the secret of some of the earliest European Homo sapiens remains from as long ago as around 40,000 years. So we could assume from this that there was a migration of Homo sapiens from the Levant in the Middle East into Europe from its southeastern side. What we have discovered from one particular fossil is that there is an abundance of Neanderthal DNA within it. The only clear explanation is that a Neanderthal must have been involved in its recent ancestry. Homo sapiens did not have a problem with choosing a Neanderthal as someone that they could reproduce with. Subsequent finds have been found to suggest that Homo sapiens migrated into areas of Italy, Switzerland, and France, and then as far northwest as the United Kingdom, which would likely have been accessible without the need of a sea crossing. Also, we can see that the Italian and Iberian peninsulas were populated quite early, but there isn't really anything to suggest a migration further north than modern day Germany and the Czech Republic, suggesting that the Ice Age was preventing any quality of life for hominins in anywhere other than Central Europe and southwards. It was around this era that we see very strong evidence of the human interest in art and ritual. The Red Lady of Paviland is a 33,000-year-old skeleton dyed in red ochre, which must be evidence of a ceremonial burial. Animal bones were turned into flutes and make no mistake about it they were created for the purpose of creating musical melodies as demonstrated by the pierced holes which would change the pitch of the sound in exactly the same way as a modern wind instrument. We will investigate all of these aspects of the emergence of art and ritual in a specially dedicated podcast. In terms of the Neanderthal Disappearance what can we determine happened? Firstly, there is a question of interbreeding. This happened, but the anatomically modern human is really the species that prevailed over the Neanderthals. So although interbreeding happened, Neanderthal was probably not the most popular first choice of Homo sapiens for a breeding partner. So although Neanderthal is in our DNA, it was not a preference it was obviously something that happened before non-African humans colonised the rest of the known world. A small but significant percentage of Neanderthal DNA exists in all non-African modern day humans, so any European interbreeding event between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals that happened around 40,000 years ago does not appear to have had any further consequence to human history than had already probably taken place. Any theory of a mass genocidal rampage of Homo sapiens spreading across Europe in a warrior style, brutally butchering any unfortunate Neanderthal that it come across is not really supported by archaeological evidence. We would surely have found some categorically grim evidence of such behaviour by now. Whilst I am sure that the skirmishes over land and resources would have happened I am sure that it was already something happening between Neanderthal tribes with each other and also Homo sapiens tribes with each other. If you're in a tribe and another tribe has resources that you need, you'll fight for them, whether you're a Neanderthal or Homo sapiens or whether the opponent is Neanderthal or Homo sapiens. What I personally think is likely is that Homo sapiens were superior in intelligence and adaptability. My evidence for this is simple the Mode four or Ignatian technology attributed to Homo sapiens is clearly more advanced than the mode three Mousterian technology attributed to Neanderthals, so therefore in a competition for resources, my betting money would be on Homo sapiens coming out on top. It would be no surprise to find out that as Homo sapiens migrated deeper and deeper into Europe, the Neanderthals were pushed further and further out into the edges of its range and into isolated pockets of communities that either ran out of resources or suffered a decline in general health due to inbreeding. Either way, we know that Homo sapiens appeared in Europe and soon after this, Neanderthals disappeared. This may be how we lost the Denisovans and the Floresman too. To me... The current evidence to hand points very strongly towards this sequence of events. It is at this point in our history that we accept Homo sapiens as the sole hominin survivor. All other hominins are now gone. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of History of the World podcast, a lot later than we would normally publish it, but don't worry, in a couple of days you'll be getting a new episode on Ancient Japan. Now, if you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then please do visit our website and click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, and you will qualify... For the gifts and rewards that we offer. Now then. Um, if you want to access bonus material. And you want to listen to the podcast ad free. Then you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify. And if you want to get in touch with me. Drop me a line on History of the World Podcast At mail.com That's it for this week. Next time we'll be talking about ancient Japan. And we'll be catching up. On some of your uh, reviews and messages. We'll also have uh, this weekend a bonus episode uh, for those subscribers as well. So until next time, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.